Is there anything you would have done differently? We've reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Dyerwald. And I'm Julie Mason. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Now, gentle listeners, you heard that was not Eliana Johnson. That was, in fact, my dear friend, former colleague and all around rock star Julie Mason, who, among her many attributes, we could say include the host of and you make sure I get it right. You start at 7 a.m. and you run until nine East Coast time on 6 a.m. 6 a.m. I know. I'm not a morning person, Chris. So yeah. when I've done I, when I've done your show at seven, I thought I was like making a serious uh, contribution to the team. No, we were already an hour into it by then. Yeah, Julie hosts of the press pool. No, Julie uh, Mason mornings. OK, I'm getting it all wrong. See, <laughs> this is why people hate the media. Julie Mason mornings, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. East Coast on Sirius XM POTUS. This is all, now this is accurate? Right, yes, yes. Previously has worked at Politico, previously has worked at the Houston Chronicle, uh, previously worked with me at the Washington Examiner, and brings the same chaotic good energy that Eliana does. Eliana's chaotic good energy is stranded in Dallas this week because of bad travel situations and difficulties. So my dear friend, Julie, has agreed to come on. And Julie, I promise we will proceed through our paces gently here. Up first, it's our front page. These are the stories that we thought were the most important this week. So we have a a cable news doubleheader. You never had to work in cable news or never (laughs) had the opportunity to work in cable news. Not yet. But the first one out of the box is there is Dan Bongino and... I I knew Dan when I worked at Fox and was always a very nice guy. Rupert Murdoch said he fired me because I wasn't, I didn't get as good ratings as Dan Bongino. Oh, the indignity. I had Dan on my show and he was such a nice guy. He was just a pleasure to talk to, bursting with enthusiasm on his subject matter. And he just seems to have gone around a bend. He had, he definitely, well, and, and here's the current bend. So Bongino got an interview with Donald Trump. And here, let's listen to just a little bit of that right now. Let's hear a clip of that. Joining me now is the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump. President Trump, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Good to be with you. The media coverage during your administration was uh, an abomination. And that may be selling it short. I mean, it was really atrocious, whether it was yeah. the Wuhan lab leak, which looks likely at this point. And but one of the other things I find odd is, you know, you were very gracious to Democrat governors during the crisis. And these Democrat governors had a really terrible record. And yet now it's the opposite approach by the media, sir. And Republican governors, Abbott and DeSantis, all of a sudden are the enemies. Odd, no? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's great way of phrasing it's very interesting tell me that makes sense you have a fake election you have an election with uh, voter abuse and and with uh, voter fraud like nobody's ever seen before okay so pretty pretty typical of what you get right-wing media talking to donald trump you the best Mm -hmm. he says but then here's what happened the fox news channel edited the interview with trump because they took out the part where trump said stuff that was not true about 
the uh, 2020 election. Now we are nearing, is it August 16th? Is that right? When we're supposed to have the coup d'etat? The reinstatement, the reinstatement. Yeah. The reinstatement. The re the re coup d'état the de, <laughs> the de, the de coup d'état. So Trump was talking about this stuff, and Fox, which is trying to skate a very narrow line between keeping viewers who believe that the election was stolen and not getting sued for twenty quadrillion dollars by Dominion and Symantec, the companies that say they were defamed by folks on Fox with false claims about the election. So. Bongino does the interview, says it's good. Then he comes under pressure for the editing. And then Bongino turns on Fox. So Julie Mason, what do you do if you're, is Bongino doing the only thing he can do, which is to attack his employer to avoid the wrath of his fan base? What's the play? The smarter play would have been to blame it on YouTube, right? Because the Fox News editing, from what I understand, Chris, was to be in compliance with YouTube Uh, procedures and requirements, which is that they're not post, they're trying to weed out inclement information like about the election (laughs) was stolen. We don't want to hear that on YouTube. It was Fox News to blame. They want to get their content in front of as many eyeballs as possible. And it it seems to me that they're cutting up the interview. I I just don't think that's like the the screaming moral outrage that, that Dan is trying to have it be. Yeah. And what I don't get, and I think this is a sort of a growing trend with Fox. I was talking to somebody about somebody who worked at Fox and we're talking about how indisciplined the staff has become because we're talking about uh, Tucker Carlson spending a week in Hungary, which Eliana and I talked about last week is just bizarre Mm -hmm. because for the average American television viewer, who could care less about Hungary? It's just, it's silly. But, and I said, they let him do it. And he said, or did he, or is it more like that he told them that he was going to do it? And I was like, oh yeah. Then here's the question. What does Fox have to do to Bongino now that Bongino has attacked them publicly using his radio show to attack the network? Does, is Fox obliged to punish him? I mean, do they care? Does that hurt Fox in any way? It kind of makes him look good, right? Like he's he's this firebrand taking on the establishment. They can't really mind that much. What's he actually doing to them? Nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the old joke in politics about what you do with your political base, you treat them like mushrooms, you keep them in the (laughs) and cover them with horse manure. So maybe this is a, maybe this works out as a set piece that is helpful. Here's what's not helpful is if you're Brian Stelter, And I assume he's hawking a book. I don't know. But he goes on. And you should know that we've talked many times here before about how silly it is for CNN and Fox uh, to do media criticism, to to have a show that's like hard hitting media criticism here as there is a burning garbage pile right behind them. And they're like, I don't know what you I didn't see anything. So he goes on the Stephen Colbert show. And let's just let's take a let's run that out a little bit. Let's take a listen. You know, there's nothing more important. But he didn't talk about his brother once the trouble started. He said, I'm not going to talk about my brother. And that was also a management ruling. And so the way they ruled that way when his brother was on the show pretty much every night uh, during the COVID crisis. I think it's really complicated. That seems like an odd uh, conflict of rules. It is an odd conflict, but I don't think uh, if we open up the journalism ethics book, there's no page for this. It's the, the craziest set of circumstances you can imagine. So I guess I would say, ow, that is that is an owie. At first, I don't like. The I should just state for the record when Colbert does this thing, and it's what John Stewart used to do, where it's I'm a comedian. Actually, no, I'm a journalist, and uh, it's not fair because uh, you, yeah. you don't know who you're talking to. So I stipulate yeah. that part. 
But man, that was fairly weak sauce. Yeah, it was. But is it the proper role of Brian Stelter to go out and be the spokesman for CNN? And no. Like, no, it's not. But by covering the story or trying to cover the story, he brings it on himself. Would the smarter move have been for CNN to not cover its own story? I'm not even sure. What are his actual duties here? Yeah. And if you want to go out and look, I've done plenty of interviews uh, when I worked at Fox where people say, what about this about Fox? And you find yourself in a position where if you do not defend your employer, it looks like you're Bonginoing, right? It looks like you're, <laughs> you're doing the wrong thing. You don't want to be on TV as I have been, or when I was doing a book tour or whatever, that somebody says, Fox is the devil, right? You don't want to be like, I don't know. I don't know nothing about that. I mean, <laughs> I'm just here to sell my book. I don't know. So, so it, it's difficult, but here's the other thing though. I wasn't a media critic. Stelter claims to be a media critic. And for him to go out and say, I think they've handled this pretty well. The degree to which, and this was Colbert's good point, the degree to which they profited by the relationship between the brothers, which was, by the way, the least popular Fairly Brothers movie ever, but the degree to which they profited by the brothers Cuomo, and then now it's clean, now it's all cleaned up. I think all the Cuomo stuff was unmitigated disaster. And I don't think there's another way you can, I don't think there's another way to spin that. It's almost, it's too bad that Stelter has gotten out in front of this story because there is an important story to be told about CNN's handling of the Cuomo conflicts of interest. And, but now Brian Stelter has become the face of that. And it's, it's only marginally about him. I know that Eric Wemple at the Washington Post and everything has gone hard after, after Brian Stelter. I, I think the, the bigger story though, is how CNN violated sort of basic journalism ethics and their handling of Chris Cuomo's relationship with his brother and the work he did on behalf of his brother. That's the more important thing that should be scrutinized, not Brian Stelter's sort of hammy handling of it. And this is one that you and I have talked about in the past. The the challenge where you say, this is opinion and this is news. He's a journalist. He's a this. The truth is, I would say the press in general got a terrible black eye out of the whole Andrew Cuomo experience. I don't know what your pre-existing Andrew Cuomo thoughts prior to 2020 were, <laughs> but I always thought of him as not that smart, a legacy, right? A pretty weak imitation of his dad and not that impressive of a person. I was floored when I saw the outpouring of gushy, just fawning coverage of Andrew Cuomo during coronavirus. I think that had a lot to do with wanting a juxtaposition to Trump. I think yeah, there was a, yeah. a, great, a great desire to be like, we have Trump who says he wants to put a UV light up your bottom. And here's Andrew Cuomo, our brave leader. I think that was part of it. How did you see it? Yes, no, you're absolutely right. That's true. And America needed a hero at that moment. And so the press was going to deliver one. There was no moral authority at that point. No one you could listen to who was giving you good information. But here was Andrew Cuomo with these daily briefings. So he was accessible, which the press loves. Access, like they love the Trump accessibility. But when we're in the middle of a pandemic, you need reliable information. And he did do that. But I agree, there was a certain fawning and the whole like sort of Cuomo sexual aspect to it and everything. Oh, it got man. very weird, but sorry. But but so friends who have covered Cuomo, that's what I always come back to. He was just so difficult to deal with. He was a screamer and a yeller and a confronter and it's just hard to cover. And, and But I always had to keep reminding myself that he was a Democrat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Totally. 
Yeah. Oh, in another place in time, if he mm-hmm. was from Arkansas, this would have been a the, someone else's kid. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. He would Winthrop Rockefeller's son. There's another thing, and I wrote about this for the Dispatch last week a little bit, which was there's also a, you as a Bostonian, as a Massachusetts, can relate to this you a little bit. But certainly, no, you're not. No, 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 no. <laughs> Only in the best sense. But you lived in Texas for a long time. The bias toward coverage of individuals and events that occur between New York City and Washington, D.C., while the rest of the country, like, you know, the phenomenon, there's a snowstorm that takes place. There's a nor'easter uh, that, <laughs> that hits the Acela corridor and people in Arizona where it's 80 degrees are like, we've been talking about this for a week. What do you get? What are you guys doing? The Cuomo, the Cuomo sexuality was also helped by adjacency, right? If you're a politician who is working in the dominant media market in the country and the dominant media market in the world, you're just going, you get a lot more. I guess it's like for the athletes who play in the sports teams in New York, you get a lot more attention, which is good, but then you also get a lot more scrutiny. And when things go bad, it goes bad really hard. Okay. But, and I understand that. And it's a persistent criticism and it is a true one because we are now concentrated here in the Northeast. But part of that, Chris, is owing to the the disintegration of local news and even local bureaus by papers like the New York Times used to keep a reporter in Houston, used to had reporters in Arizona, but now that like those bureaus have been closed. There's no there's not that kind of appetite for local news. And certainly local papers are shutting down and there's just fewer reporters covering local news. So you come here to DC and people criticize me all the time. And they say, all you talk about is Washington. Yeah, I've done my time in Texas. Yeah. I, I was there for, I covered that for 20 years. And now I'm doing this. And I didn't come to Washington to cover Winnipesaukee or I don't know, like no, totally. Wisconsin. I'm in Washington to cover Washington. There's just fewer reporters to cover the heat wave in the Midwest. It's expensive. It's hard to do well. Local news is proving the worst, most intractable challenge that we find in journalism today, because just as you say, so there's the one thing, which is I wish that the capital of the United States was in Wheeling, West Virginia, so I could go live there <laughs> and eat Patsy's Pizza on and Friday. And it would make sense. It would, make it, would, sense. it would just make a lot of sense and and my, and my raise my kids in a nice town. That would be really great. But the capital and the gov- the seat of government is in Washington, D.C., and the, uh, the economic financial capital of the United States is still, for the time being, in New York. These things are true, and that's good. And I want to play in the highest level of, of the prof- – we both want to play at the highest level of the profession we're chosen. And mm-hmm. this is these are the big leagues. Mm-hmm. Great. That's a good thing. But the bad thing is that is compounded by when you have a vacuum in the rest of the country, and a lot of this uh, plays into why our politics are so bad. Yes, Very few issues when you get right down to it are national issues. Even vaccinations or coronavirus Mm -hmm. is not a national story. The situation in Arkansas is very different than it is in uh, Tacoma, Washington, than it is in (laughs) Vermont. Than Vermont. So Mm -hmm. these are, and, and we don't get those stories. What we get are narratives that are pushed into, we try to push everything into one national narrative to USA McPaper over all of the rest of the country. And it's not good. No, no, it does not serve a broader audience. And people want their news for free. And it's just, it's rough. It's rough. But we, a lot of people subscribe to SiriusXM to listen to you. A lot of people subscribe to The Dispatch to read me and read the, the whole swell gang of guys and gals. So I, we just were, one of the mantras here is talk is cheap and, ca- and cable news and a lot of the other problems that we have. It's just really cheap to get a couple of fatheads to talk about stuff all the time. Uh, It's hard to pay the next Julie Mason 
to go out and cover the Houston Public Utility Board and go do the next thing. So we just need to do better. Who else needs to do better? Twitter. Uh, and so- <laughs> So Where to begin? I, I want to commend. So the Ian Leslie's Substack is the Ruffian, mm-hmm. and I just I want to commend to everybody this great piece, Angels, Demons, and Videotape. I know you. Everybody remembers the story of Amy Cooper, the woman in Central Park who called the police on the black man who was walking her dog. Barry Weiss, her podcast broke down the whole thing, like unpacked all of it. It's really worth a listen. It's very good to talk about how this story about a black bird watcher and a white dog walker turned into this national sensation. She was the she was basically described as the Uber Karen, the worst of the worst. I, I remember when the story came out, I felt, is afraid the right word? I had serious trepidation about weighing in on this in either direction because mm-hmm. it sounded fishy. The charge sounded fishy. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, I don't want to have to be the guy who's defending the woman who's calling the cops on the black bird watcher at Central Park. I don't want to be that. I did my best to ignore it at the time. And I should have probably dug in. And if you go through this piece at the Ruffian, it's so good and it breaks it all down and is just a reminder to me that you may have heard me say it in the past, opinions are luxury items, don't have more than you can afford. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't need to have an opinion about everything, but this was a reminder that there are really good stories to be done out there. And this is a a more interesting, much more complicated story uh, than it was first portrayed. Yeah, no, you're right. And my first reaction to the story was the same thing. It was a little too perfect for the mood in the country at that moment. As a journalist, you never take the first version of events. You got to keep going. I will say two things about this. One, and I would say the Nicholas Sandman story and the Amy Cooper story, they um, they end with unsatisfying conclusions and ambiguity. And news like news and news consumerism rejects an ambiguity. At the same time, there's so many pressures on and on journalists to Chris as you know, produce the story like 5 mm-hmm. minutes ago. It was such a culture shock when I got to Politico and I was signed a story. And I asked my editor, like, when's my deadline? And he was like, five minutes ago, write it now. And I had like, where do you think you are? When this isn't the examiner, you don't have till 7pm princess (laughs) to roll in your 500 words. Anyway, so it's really tough. You can't make all the calls you need. You can't do all the due diligence. You have to get it now. And that point is brought home. and, And you say, isn't that a pressure we journalists put on ourselves? No, because whenever there's a big news story, Chris, and and you see this too, speaking of Twitter, there's all this like, why aren't journalists there? Why aren't we getting coverage? Why isn't, and I remember, remember there was something that happened in some very remote, dangerous part of Africa. And it, it was either like some kind of attack or a plane crash. And people were tweeting at me saying, Julie, why can't I get any news? Why isn't there any news? And I was like, because this is a really dangerous place. There are no journalists who live and work there at, for CNN or any of the cable outlets. You got to get someone in there. They got to get insured. They got to have a crew with them and they got to get right. to where they're going and then report the story. Like it can't be, but it, people want instantaneous news. And that's how we end up with stories like the Central Park Birdwatcher. I'll give you his, the closing paragraph I think is quite good. He says, journalists like novelists should be curious about everything and empathetic about everyone. They should seek to tell a different story, not the story everybody else is telling. They should instinctively want to report on what it felt like to be Amy Cooper that morning in Central Park, as well as Christian Cooper. The corollary of this attitude is a deep suspicion of stories with angels and demons 
which perfectly fit our own story about how the world is. Moral clarity means nothing to report. Word. I mean, yeah, that's like that utopian view of people always say, well, if your editor was going to change your story, why didn't you get up and quit? Because that's not how that works. Rochefoucauld told us that hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. We won't live up. We will not live up to those standards of having empathy for the good and the bad and the good and seeing the complexity of all these things. Because sometimes it's not complex, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. it, it's or it's not very complex at all. But as an aspiration of asking the question and thinking about the humans who are involved in stories like this, where you have clashes of personalities and clashes of people, it is something good for us to aspire to. And I will try to do better. I, too, will try to do better. We said (laughs) insincerely. (laughs) Never mind. Okay, now after the jump, we're going to move on to our obsessions of the week. The deep dive where we break down the stories that we can't get out of our heads. Okay, Julie, this is not just because I'm a glutton, but it is in part because I'm a glutton. The uh, New York Times dining section. Uh, <laughs> it's already good. Where we're taking this, it's already good. Has a headline that says, why do American grocery stores still have an ethnic aisle? And it is a, it is a vituperation of square whiteies who go into the ethnic aisle and say, Ooh, bean curd. What's that? And <laughs> I, I don't know what the grocery store that you went to when you were a kid was like. Did it have an ethnic aisle? No, absolutely not. In Acton, Massachusetts, no, no, <laughs> we, we we paid no heed to such things. Were there? Were, but did they have like taco shells and stuff? Was did anybody eat a taco? <laughs> yes, yes. Actually, tacos were a late arrival in uh, Massachusetts, but enthusiastically embraced. And there was a dedicated section in the supermarket where you could find them. And other Old El Paso, Old El Paso brand. Yes, that's yeah, right. The, the stale, the stale uh, in, in Wheeling, West Virginia, I can promise you that when I went, went to Greg Hallworth's house in about 1981 and 1982, mm-hmm. and they had tacos, I felt that I had been transported to a distant land. I felt <laughs> And I had been like, I'm thinking about the bean soup and pot roast back home. I'm like, what the heck is this going on? This is wild. <laughs> this isn't even Chi-Chi's. So here's the quote. Uh, Today, the section can seem like an anachronism, a cramming of countless cultures into a single small enclave in a country where an estimated 40% of the population identifies as non-white, according to the Census Bureau, and where H-Mart, a Korean-American supermarket chain, has become one of the fastest-growing retailers by specializing in foods from around the world. Even the word ethnic, emblazoned on signs over many of these corridors, feels meaningless, as everyone has an ethnicity. So I first want to check my bias here. This is an article written for the New York Times, which is a newspaper for the city of New York. Yes. And it's not for Schenectady. It's not for Tahlequah, Oklahoma. It's not for Eau Claire, Wisconsin. So yes, in New York, it's, it's, I get it. But the sneering of this, I hate to say it, but in parts of the, I, I just spent the last two weeks driving around the interior of the country. My sons and I went from D.C. to Pittsburgh, to Charleston, West Virginia, to Knoxville, Tennessee, to Memphis, Tennessee, to St. Louis, Missouri, to Indianapolis, and back again to Wheeling, West Virginia. And there's a lot of white people out in this country. <laughs> they're shrinking. They're, they're shrinking in power, but they, they still well, exist. Actually, I know this is a, a media podcast, but just a note on the, the census numbers. An interesting part there is part of the reason 
that the number of whites is shrinking in the census numbers has to do with the fact that there are a larger and larger number of whites who refuse to identify as white. They choose to identify as, won't say, identify as a Native American, even mm-hmm. though they're not Native American. So, they're, <laughs> so, that, so that's part of it. There are whites who are rebelling against that. And that's been an interesting phenomenon. But yes, America is sl- slower than once projected. America is going to become a majority minority country, though uh, Richard Alba, the demographer at NYU, makes a great point, which is these census numbers are becoming increasingly useless because especially with Hispanic Americans, are you a white Hispanic? Are you a non-white Hispanic? Are you one third black, one third Hispanic? Was your great grandmother Filipino? As things get, and this, I guess, goes to the point about the ethnic section, as things get blended into, you know, America is always making itself new. Once upon a time, corned beef and cabbage was considered ethnic or exotic food. <laughs> hundred years ago in the United States, that would have been something very different than the mainstream grub in the USA. So we are always making ourselves new. But I was taken with the sneeringness of this piece. I, and it's stuck in my craw, no pun intended, that this lady was talking about it in this way. The truth is that for a lot of Americans... The ethnic food aisle is a great thing because it is a great place for them to go explore Mm -hmm. and go try stuff out. If you live in suburban St. Louis, having a place where it's like, oh, this would be interesting and I would like to try it out. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think it's racist. I don't think it's bad. I think it's just situational. There were a few things about that story that struck me. I, I too, was some not obsessed. Let's call it preoccupied with that story. (laughs) <laughs> One thing I really liked about it, the history of the international aisle was mm-hmm. uh, like after World War II, soldiers coming home who had sampled cuisines of the world. This was for them. If they had been to another country in service of this country and they had a taste for that, uh, they could find it at the at their local supermarket. That was interesting. Also, I was sympathetic to the smaller brands that get squeezed out by Nestle and Coca-Cola and the huge brands, and they can't get any shelf space. And I mean, Goya is Cuban-owned or Cuban-American-owned, and that counts as an ethnic food that has been mainstreamed. You can find Goya beans basically in the bean aisle, not in a dedicated section. But I was disappointed that that the idea of international foods or ethnic foods are being regarded now as a tool for oppression. That kind of exhausted me because as a shopper and I make like Indian food all the time, it's about convenience, right? Like Indian food is a very specific cuisine and you need all the accoutrement And, and to have it all in one place is just handy. I didn't consider that it was maligning anyone or marginalizing or that it should be diffuse throughout the store. It's just easier to buy it all in one aisle rather than have to go hunt around the store for it. And I I feel like that's why stores do it. The New York Times was making a larger point that this is about white intolerance. And I'm not sure that. And I I, I totally agree. That's that the whole idea here is, or I think the good part of having the ethnic food section is, it's a gateway for people to experiment and try other things. Mm -hmm. If you sprinkle these ingredients throughout the store, it'll be harder for people who are unfamiliar with these cuisines to go and try them. But as just as you say, I remember when I was a kid and my mom got a walk. Somebody gave my mom a walk. (laughs) That's so 70s and 80s. It is so. And and gave, (laughs) gave her a walk and she had a Chinese cleaver. And we watched Walk With Yan on public television. And trying to make Chinese food at home was a fun and interesting and exciting thing to do 40, 35 years ago. 
And it made it easy to walk into the Kroger and there was all the stuff that you needed, just as you say, in one place. Mm -hmm. I just, I think that, I think this falls into a category of give people the benefit of the doubt (laughs) in both directions. (laughs) Listen, when people say, Hey, I feel marginalized because I'm here, but I would also say if your community has a large enough Indian population or a large enough Filipino population or a large enough whatever population, it won't be the ethnic aisle. It'll just be the grocery store. I think market forces take care of these considerations. In Texas, in Houston, you can buy like those saint prayer candles at the Mm -hmm. supermarket. That's like just right in the supermarket and along with everything you need for your Tex-Mex feast. I know this is not a food podcast, despite all of my best efforts, but Houston, which I know you have a real soft spot for, but I find the most oppressively awful, huge American city because it's giant (laughs) and the weather. You just don't understand it. It's terrifyingly bad. The weather is so oppressive, but the fusion cuisine between redneck and Southeast Asian Mm. and their shrimp situation off the Mm. Gulf. Yeah. Houston is a living monument to how American and world cuisine can work together when you get a, a shrimp boil with lemongrass in it. And that is, <laughs> yes. That is all right. That that's is all eating. right. That's that good is, eating. That is, mm-hmm. that is as, as our friend Mike Hedges would say, that's good eating right there. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Now we're going to do what I'm obsessed with. Yeah, this what did you obsess with? on? Okay. Hear me out. Scott Brown returns to politics. Scott Brown. Scott Brown. Scott Brown. Brown. Scott, yeah. What? Oh, yeah. Scott it's wicked piss. It's wicked piss. <laughs> so less than a year in, he's resigned from the law school in Massachusetts. But what struck me with the what law school? What law, well, so back us up. New England Law School, traditionally for women. And okay. he was very proud of that. And in the Trump administration, he took two tours of duty, as oh. I recall, as the U.S. ambassador to New Zealand. He was there the whole time. He had the best Trump administration of any American. <laughs> And him and Gail had a great Twitter account. They would go jogging and post it on and say, I had an omelet. It was pretty good. So I enjoyed it. Yes, Scott Brown had the best Trump administration. Right. So Scott Brown, what struck me about the coverage of Scott Brown, it it was so matter of fact, it was like Scott Brown is stepping down from a law school with a vow to reenter the political arena. No one knows what to make of this guy. And I await the political analysis forthcoming. Does he, is he viable? He was Trumpy, but is he? Is he? No, he's not that Trumpy. I love uh, blue state Republicans. So he was elected statewide in Massachusetts. He came up short in New Hampshire. But blue state Republicans, to me, are like alien abductees or like people who are subpoenaed by Congress. They have a rarefied air they're, they're very singular people and they're very interesting to examine. And no one knows what to make of Scott Brown and his future prospects other than that his prospects exist. Is he viable in the Republican Party? Is he still a Republican? Is he going to run as hard Trumpy? Or what's he going to run for? It's New Hampshire. He could maybe run for governor if Chris Sununu gets into that Senate race. Or if Chris Sununu decides to just stay in the governor's, maybe Scott Brown could run against Maggie Hassan. There's so many possibilities, but no one knows how to figure them out. So the Brown-Hassan rematch would actually be a pretty good race. And Hassan is, so the, the underreported in the political press, the underreported story is that in Nevada and in New Hampshire, there are a couple of potentially, and I say potentially vulnerable Democratic Senate incumbents. Mm-hmm. And Hassan is more vulnerable than Democrats would like us to think. And look, Scott Brown has a lot of deficiencies as a candidate. And it's easy it's easy to write him off and say 2010 was his magic moment. Obamacare was his thing. And it was that. But there is a there is an indefatigableness of Scott Brown, right? There's like a willingness. And I think about him driving his pickup truck across Massachusetts in 2010 and all that stuff. Like he has the necessary attribute 
the Mark Twain said that the secret to success is ignorance and arrogance. And Scott Brown has enough of those. <laughs> That's not very super likable. I know I, I, a lot of very successful people to be successful. It's the, like the old story of the bumblebee, the, bump, the aeronautical engineers cannot demonstrate that the bumblebee can fly. In fact, it's impossible for the bumblebee to fly his fat furry butt up in the air. He's just too big and his wings are too small, but nobody told the bumblebee. So he keeps flying. And Scott Brown has that bumblebee quality. To him. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'll go do it. I'll run and I'll switch mm-hmm. states and go run over there. So I would definitely not write him out. And I dig your obsession. He at one point was working at a bike shop in New Hampshire. And one time before that, I got him to hold me. Do you remember that? It was at the correspondence dinner. Oh, I had nice. a really bad week, a really bad week. Yes. He was there in his tux and he smelled like Dracar Noir. And it was just bringing me back to the 80s. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I went over to him and I was like, hi. And he said, hi. And I said, I had a, a really bad week. Would you, can you hold me? And he was like, yeah, come on in. And he was come like, come on in for the good me. stuff. But not in a not in a pervy way, just in a, no. a nurturing, friendly way. Just rocking and crooning a little bit. And his daughter came over and broke it up and uh, caused my heartache. But it was. I think he has a future. I do. Welcome back, Scott Brown. And you're not just saying that because you still have the underwear modeling ad that he did <laughs> posted up over your desk. I mean, yeah, I have that. But I also have a picture of Ted Cruz. So whatever. I, I like big personalities. Hot side, hot, cool side, cooled. I got gotcha. you. Okay. All right. So now we, this is more important when Eliana is here. This is when we try to say something nice. These are our favorite items of the week where we just want to say something good about somebody doing something great in journalism. Okay, should I go first? You absolutely can go first. All right, I'll go first. Uh, It's a twist because I I struggled to find something nice to say, but I'll say this. I'm glad the Democrats are turning on the news media and the press again. I'm delighted by it. It's healthy. It's what should happen. For so long during the Trump years, the news media, we were essential to democracy. We were a a pillar of, we were absolutely, we were the crusaders for justice and truth. And now with Joe Biden in the White House, we are dirty, evil maligners who just wish for Trump back. And here's the thing. I think Democrats, they get a little confused. Sometimes they do. And they think everyone's on their side because they're obviously right and true about everything. And I think they got confused by the coverage of Trump and also by the never Trumpers like Charlie Sykes and and Jonah Goldberg were never going to join the pro-choice rally. Those are Republican dudes. And I think Democrats got a little confused in their minds that somehow hating Trump was equal to becoming a Democrat. And that's absolutely not the case. And I would say a little bit of that rubs off on the press, too, where the Democrats think we're all in this together. It's like, no, we're not on your side. We're not on anyone's side. We're against all of you. There are certainly some former Republicans Bill Crystal, the Lincoln Project, Max Boot at the Washington Post, Jennifer oh, sure. Rubin. Mm. There, there are people who did the thing that you described, where they stopped being Republicans or conservatives and moved all the way over because of Trump. But uh, yes, you're a hundred percent. And part of what it is, Republicans believe that the press is against them, which they are in in the main. But the I don't Demo- know if that's true. I think that there is deservedly in many cases, undeservedly in some cases, a a disparity in coverage. But I think George W. Bush and Bill Clinton got very different kinds of coverage. And I think that there is a, if there, if there's a bias in the press, the bias comes from the fact, and I I have tried to explain it in geographical terms before, Mm -hmm. most of the people who work in the media come from where? Washington, 
New York. They come from big cities. They come from blue places. The people who are inclined to want to go into journalism do that. So saying that there is a left of center bias among people who work in newsrooms would be like saying there's a right of center bias of people who work in the energy industry because they're from Oklahoma and Texas <laughs> and wherever else. So I think there's a, there's a self-selection bias there. And I think that thing is true. Republicans overstate it to a massive degree, right? They're all against us. Everything is bad all the time. Democrats then believe the Repu- what the Republicans are saying. Yep, that's right. The press is liberal. They're going to do what we want all of the time. We right. can count on them to be right. yeah. our running buddies. And the greatest bias in the press is for what? Conflict. Hmm. What is the single greatest bias? Story, right? Right. <laughs> you need, Tension, you need, conflict. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You need a story. You can't come back to your editor and say like, yeah, I don't know. We talked about it. Everybody seems cool about it. And so we're just we're good. <laughs> now, that's not a story. That's you know what the story is, though, is that journalists who covered the White House really couldn't stand Bill Clinton, hated the guy, just resented him, thought he was a phony jerk. And they just loved, they just liked the guy. He was fun and they missed him after he was gone. And so again, personal perspective doesn't really direct coverage. But again, like a journalist is not its own ecosystem. There's editors and the corporation and sometimes shareholders in it. And there's a whole ecosystem that that is a part of journalism. So it's not just these individual decision makers. Word to big word. word. My nice thing to say, it pegs off of this headline. I'm in Jackson, Wyoming. This headline in the local newspaper, Fatal Grizz Mauling Linked to Carcass. And (laughs) I've written some good headlines in my day. I don't know that I've ever written a headline as good as Fatal Grizz Mauling Linked to Carcass. I don't think I've ever had the phrase linked to carcass ever in a headline that I've written. But it was great. It's been great traveling across the country to, to, as we were talking about before, Local journalism is in big trouble, but all of the little newspapers, and I, I, bought, I bought 20 newspapers in the past two weeks, and all of the little newspapers that are doing a good job writing good headlines about carcass-length grismallings and all of that other stuff who are making it happen, I was just a lot of admiration because these are hard times and the pay is bad and it's tough out there, but that all these reporters who are out there doing it, it just made me feel better about my work, it made me feel better about the profession. And so a big hats off. That's fantastic. I totally agree. A hundred percent. And you haven't written a headline like that yet, but it's important to have goals. And you're not done with your career. You can have a carcass knows? in there somewhere, stay in politics. And I was going to, I was going to say, uh, there'll be plenty of carcasses in 2024. So <laughs> no, no danger there. Julie, you are so kind to give us your time today after getting up basically at midnight. We, you were wonderful to help us, smart, insightful, and funny. And everybody ought to listen to Julie Mason in the morning. Mm-hmm. Julie Mason mornings, 6 a.m. East on Sirius XM's POTUS channel 124. Everybody ought to listen uh, because she's uh, smart, funny, perspicacious, loves America, uh, and is a great person. Uh, so we thank you. It was a and, pleasure. And that's the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, you can email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Inkstained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever get, or wherever you get your podcast. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.